Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording of an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. In this conversation, Pumla Deneo Kola, Sikli Esipo Nonchukweni, and Yowande Omotosho speak to Mohale Mashejo about feminist connections. Here's their conversation. <clears throat> okay, I just want to say, I don't know if Mervyn is here, who's in charge. You owe us four minutes. It's 7.34. <laughs> four minutes. Uh, welcome to Conversations with Mohale. I am Mohale. Um, it's been so long since we've been back here. I don't know if, I, <laughs> if I'm excited or terrified. Um, you know, the world has changed, we've changed, but coming here has the same feeling of being home. And it's only right that I'm here with the, with, firstly, Pumla and Yewande were the first people I ever interviewed for conversations with Mahalit. So it's nice, you know, to be back with them. And Sipesikla, obviously, Sikla, we are inducting you into the Academy of Madness. <laughs> with ease, gradually. Right? Uh, there's no easier. We are not like Tina Turner. We don't do it nice and slow. No, it's not that kind of thing. So um, every year we have a problem where when it's question time, uh, you guys have too many questions. Somebody <laughs> says it's not a question, it's more of a comment. <laughs> so I, let's just get house rules out of the way. If you have a comment, save it for the Bagyaokupa, please, because we do get kicked out of here, but we can hang out at the bar. If you have a question, that's very good. So this year, I'm going to do uh, talk, <coughs> some questions, talk again, some questions, so that we don't miss out on a lot of questions. So. I hear we're talking about uh, feminist connections. That's not what I planned at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I was given these books, one of the first things was, okay, Female Fear Factory, uh, a children's book and a novel about grief. How the heck are we going to do this? So I thought to just you know, ease us into this, Yawande, I'm sorry, I'm full of surprises, you know it. We're going to do an elevator pitch. You get a minute to tell us what your book is about. I'm going to start the clock. Pumla, you're a pro. So one minute, and it's going to say dee, 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 and then you stop. So give us, <laughs> why you look scared. <laughs> so let's go, one minute. Pumla, go. I you said you wanted. Uh -uh, I was giving her time. Now I have to stop this again, Pumla man. <laughs> you said you wanted. I'm no, sure I... she just likes saying my name. But oh, it wasn't that I, I was so relieved. Stop. I wasn't going to go Forewarned is four what what. So long? she's four what what. You are one what what. Go. <laughs> How long? A minute. One minute. Okay, okay. Go. Jesus. Female <clears throat> Fear Factory is about... Um, the production of fear, um, one of the ways in which patriarchy works to keep uh, all women um, and some people marginalized um, through some other kind of patriarchal gender uh, process in place. Um, I call it a factory because it's performed repeatedly. And the book is a, it explains what the female fear factory is, expands on what was chapter four in Rape South African Nightmare, and um, I extend it beyond South Africa because I think sometimes South African debates, um, South Africans tend to be very 
we are often very insular and we like to only talk about ourselves and I thought that it would be useful to actually have a discussion of how Female Fear Factory is something that's a global process and, and, and read, um, write it and theorize it from a South African context, but speak about the whole world. Also because I'm really tired of the idea that we only apply theory and abstraction from elsewhere and I thought South Africa can be the place where we come up with things to help us make sense of the world. Yes. wasn't quite one minute, but I'll let you have that. How wonderful was that? Please hold up your book so people can go buy it when we're done. There you go, Female Fear Factory. Hey! <laughs> Yewande, an unusual grief, go. An unusual grief is a story about a woman, a mother, who's lived a very scripted, wound up life. Her daughter dies by suicide, and somehow in her attempt to understand and grieve her estranged daughter, her life, she goes off script, and she gets unwound in more ways than you can imagine. That was 35 seconds left. Sitia, I don't want, oh, please hold up the book. Show, show, no, we're not don we don't donate, donate seconds here. No, 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 this is not charity. There's the book, An Unusual Grief by Yawande. Sita, you have two books, so I don't know how you're going to do oh, this, but it's Wanda and Wanda the Brave. We don't donate seconds here. <laughs> We're on the clock. <coughs> Go ahead, start. So it's crazy. I read to three sets of children today, over 800, and so I'm still trying to figure out how to uh, converse with adults. And so I might just like enter into my childhood. So let me go. It says, today, Wanda is visiting old natural hair salon, where she'll finally use her secrets, Makulu taught her, but she is unexpectedly met with resistance. Auntie Ada says that a girl must suffer for beauty. Wanda learns to use her voice with a new friend that she meets called Nkirika. Together they learn that if they use their voices together, they have power and agency to stand up for themselves. This new book <laughs> is a powerful story to show girls that they have agency and power. And if they use their voices together, they're truly stronger. So that's Wonder the Brave. <laughs> that was exactly 60 seconds. Thank you very much. <laughs> People under 60, exactly She's 60. A when, nah. She's a professor. Overall, three minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Average is out, we have three minutes. <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning, make this easy. Okay, let me put away my uh, talk show host. Um, my clock, okay. So let's go back to the beginning. I always like to find out how the world, the characters, the story and the words came to you and how we finally got to what is, you know, Wonder the Brave and Wonder and Unusual Grief. And Pumla, you've already told us how we got to Female Fear Factory. So I'm gonna skip you for this one. Okay. So you wonder how did how did the words, the story, the people, how did how did this story come to you? Mm. Um, I mean, sto yeah, stories don't really come to me. The, the lucky folk that that happens to, good for you, and hold on to that. I think what often comes to me is like a punch or a curiosity, 
and the, the curiosity here was I wanted to um, write about, uh, my mom I had lost when I was in my early 20s, and thank you, and um, I'd always wanted to write about how profound that loss was and how defining, um, but I didn't, I felt a bit, I felt like as I needed a bit of a foil, so I wanted to turn it on its head and have it like the child dies and the mother grieves. Um, so that was the first hunch. And, um, and then I wanted to write about sex. I always wanted to write about sex, but not in a way that was titillating, sorry, and, and, but, but in, in other ways. Um, and so very early on with Mujisala's story, the, the mom in the story, um, her grief was going to be kind of a sexy grief. Mm. And not a titillating sexy grief, but a, about desire, and about, and she's 60s or about to be 60. Also, I wanted to write about that because you're not allowed to you know, have desire if you're 60, if you're 50, apparently, if you're 40, you know, it's a bit controversial. Anyway, so I, I just, those are two hunches. And then, and then like you were asking, then it's, it's like you have this scent. You go on your hunt, and at some point, point you find the story, but yeah. it, take, it take, took a while. So that was, that was how it, that's how it started. Okay, mm. and now we have this incredible book. I mean, I, I like unlikable characters. And in the beginning, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go on this journey with Mojisola because she's quite, um, you know, she's, she's, she's a woman of very few words, very few emotions, but very, like, strong. And I was like, ah, oh, she's unlikable. I'll go on the journey with her. So, Sikhe, for you, obviously, there, there's no grief or sex because, well, Kiwanda. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> how, how did Wanda come into your life? Because yes. it was Wanda first and then Wanda the Brave. Yes, mm. yes. Um, which, which means you exclude me from all themes of that nature in this conversation. <laughs> you um, wish. <laughs> so, um, so actually, let me say how Wanda first came about. So in 2015, I was living in China. I was studying in Beijing at the time. Um, and I submitted a, a picture of myself for an edition, and it had me with a weave on, so when I first arrived. So I was starting my dreadlocks at the time, and I, you know, like, when you start dreadlocks, you have to cover them up, some, like, there's something that you must do with them, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough journey. Anyway, so I submit this picture of myself with this weave on, um, and then they call me back, right, and they're like, oh, please, can you come? But now I'd removed the weave, and now, you know, like, when they're starting, you know, like, when it's like, yeah, you also know by, ah. Uh, <laughs> when they're like little vitam beasts. Very just coming out there. And I remember saying to my partner, I remember saying to him, I just don't think they're going to think I'm as beautiful with my natural hair. Uh, and he responded, and I remember he said this thing where he was like, well, that's BS if that's what they think about that. And I think it's the first time I heard somebody almost like protecting you from a societal idea that you didn't even know you had internalized. And so there was a, a poem I was reading at the time called Averno by Lewis Clark, and it had this line that says, there are places like this everywhere, places that you enter as a young girl from which you never return. And so that thought really kind of had me thinking about, oh man, like what is it, this idea that you have in you? And then later on in the year, which kind of led then to the first blog about the book that led to the book, which is Wanda, um, was later on that year we were doing research in Guangzhou, which was about entrepreneurs at the south of China that sell weaves. Guys, when you enter there, it's like Chinese people are like, you want, you want the hair? Like, literally, it's like, 
hundreds of people. And I just kept thinking, how do all these people generationally have businesses that have to do with hair that we consume that has nothing to do with them at all? And I think that's when I started like thinking about this idea of like hair and our context and where it comes from. And I wrote a blog called um, African Rapunzel. That was what it was called at the time. But I referred to myself in that story as Wanda because Wanda is a children's character in The Hundred Little Dresses. Uh, which is a book I was kind of teaching at the time. So that really was the, the history of where Wanda came from, that story that really was my own discovery of what I had internalized mm. in schools in South Africa in particular, but also in our culture uh, and what we believe of ourselves, yeah. You can clap now, I know you want to. <laughs> so, when I was reading Wanda and Wanda the Brave, I started thinking about what were the books that I was reading as a child and how my perception of being a young girl in the world would have been so different. And I wanted to know, like, for me, I, I definitely, Wanda the Brave especially, she goes into a hair salon. Um, this, this woman in the hair salon is trying to put, you know, the creamy crack on her hair and she's like, no, like, <laughs> I, I really like my hair the way it is. And she actually, like, she speaks up. And I tried to think of what were the books that I was reading and what were the books saying about me? And then I realized I didn't exist in literature, necessarily. Mm. I was always a spectator, but I didn't necessarily exist. There was like nothing in there for me. And I wondered like, Pumla, what do you think would have been a thing that you would have loved to read as a kid about being a young black girl in the world? So when I was very little, in addition to reading, like primary school, it was a bookworm. Um, what was called a bookworm then. Okay, the people who are not my age don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Before she cuts me off, just go look what bookworm is. I'm not gonna explain <laughs> it, we don't have time. Um, I also was, a, I love comics, I still do. I would have loved, there were no, there were a lot of girl superheroes and women superheroes, but none of them, none of the ones that were so, like that I had access to had, were black girls. And so I always found like, so I would find once in a while, I would find something with a black boy and once in a while I would find something with a white girl, mm -hmm. but there was never anything with a black girl. Um, so I would have loved, so I mean, Wanda, I, I, sometimes I, I text Sisley and I'm like, I'm going to bed now. I just read Wanda the Brave. <laughs> I'm going to bed now. It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm wound up. But I'm going to read Wanda. <laughs> I'm reading Wanda. This is me. And she's like, really? Okay. So I would have loved, um, I'm, I'm so happy there's so many books right now coming out that I would have absolutely loved. Yeah. And I'm also really happy that as a parent, when I did choose to be a parent, there were books yeah. that I could, I would have loved. So I, I, I feel like sometimes you do for your children, if you choose to have children, yeah. what you needed, and so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonder what kind of books were you reading and what was the thing you felt was missing? Um, I mean, if I cannot answer your question. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> no, no, it's no, a no. conversation, it's a conversation. Can, can I just keep the, yeah, Let's because, do it. Because what I was also thinking was, and, and I have, because you said the, the book for girls and for boys, I mean, I have, happen to have boys, two boys, and, and, that these books exist, you know, is, is such an offering today, just off the back of what you're saying. Um, I was particularly, I think I was lucky. My parents were quite, uh, made quite an effort to, to get me books and um, books that 
to some degree could reflect me. I mean, often it was African-American, so it wasn't even a, and I was growing up in Nigeria, so, it, but I read, there was a book called Yoruba Girl Dancing by Simi Bedford, which, which felt like she was writing about me in some ways, even if the story was, because I'm a Yoruba girl, I like dancing. So, you know, I'll just include myself in that. Um, but, um, but in terms of what I missed, I mean, what I was more thinking about and what makes Wanda so amazing is just the almost spiritual juju power that hairdressers have. So, so yep. to, sta to stand up to, you know, I, I'm still scared of them. Like, I don't go us. to hairdressers. Because I'm just like, you guys, and you can't tell them anything, and they do something, and you go home, and you're like, this isn't me. At our what did you do age, to me? Right? At our big age. Also, I went to the hair salon, and I said, I just like a French plait. I don't know what this my sister did, because you can't have three French plaits. And I saw her while she was doing it, and I was like, mm-mm. 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 And she kept on saying, how does it look? And I was like, mm-mm. Mm. So you're right, that, that power that hairdressers have and Wanda the Brave, Wanda she's braver like, than all of us. Yes, yes. Bless her. <laughs> Absolutely, and maybe that's why we want to be her. Yeah, exactly. At my big age. But I do find sometimes that when I was reading Wanda the Brave, I did have a moment of like, wow, actually, like, you went out of your way to make this girl who was obviously afraid say something. And that's... That's something that I, I'd like to talk about. You see, now I must look at my notes because we get carried away. Okay, so this was about agency, right? And that's something that comes up in, in uh, an, an unusual grief as well, where Mojisola realizes that she's mm -hmm. kind of been like holding yeah. onto herself yeah. and she yeah. finally finds this agency and it is through grief. But I mean, that process for me, it was uncomfortable when I was reading it, I won't lie, because there's some BDSM for all you nasty types who like to read nasty things. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what made you go there specifically? Because it could have been like any kind of vanilla sex, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know what was interesting is, for uh, maybe over five years, I was working on the book, obviously not every day, but over that time, and the BDSM only really came into the book fourth year or like towards the end, when in a, way, in a way I had written the whole book, we'd even submitted it, people had said, yes, no, change that, we don't like it, we're not going to publish it, whatever. And that came in in a rewrite when I was, I had, so sex and desire were always there. Yeah. But I couldn't figure it out and connect and what was, and some of the feedback we got um, was, people were actually a bit squeamish. Somebody was a bit squeamish. Squeamish about? Uh, about the... I don't know, about Mojisala, you know. Being 60 and having sex. Feeling herself up and <laughs> masturbating, I mean, you know. Um, I don't know, whatever. I mean, yeah. that's not, but, but there was feedback that to me seemed like this was somebody that was being a bit, like, oh, I don't know if this is. And I have a writer friend who says, you know, when people say something is wrong with your book, particularly editors, that's usually what's right with the book. Ah. But, but what you might have to do is turn up the volume a bit. So I, like, I, was, I was heartbroken. I mean, I was heartbroken. I've been working on the book. It had been rejected. Um, I, I had to lose like 20,000 words or whatever. But, so I, I, but I just thought of this friend of mine's advice. And I thought, maybe she's right. So I said, OK, how would I turn up the sex? <laughs> you know. Enter BDSM. Chips and way, yeah, chips, uh, what whips and chains excite me. Yes, that's what Rihanna said. Get some leather, get some, but, but I need to stress, 
I was from very beginning. I was like, it's not to titillate. Yeah. So it, it is because, and the reason I feel that way is because I think that we we which is fine, but some texts want to use sex in a particular way, which is totally fine, but I didn't want to do that in that way, to like, um, and particularly BDSM, because I think there's a way in which that gets used. In a Fifty Shades say, way. Oh, in a Fifty Shades way. And I was like, okay, I don't want to go down that road. Um, how could I do this in a slightly, in a, in a different way? Um, and I, the research was really fun. Hey, what kind of research? <laughs> Maybe I want to write about videos. Can you just write down something here for me for research for the I next got you. book, I got Nina? You with that. So I think one of the things, one of the themes that came across these books, listen, when, when Frankie gave me these books, I was like, she's setting me up because now, what are the connections here? But one of the connections actually was, um, and Pumla, this is your time to shine. <laughs> okay, no, in chapter two, <laughs> chapter two, page 67, about fear, fluency. <laughs> I read, okay, I prepare. Um, it's fear, fluency, and control. And there's a, there's a quote there by Caroline Paul that says, apparently fear is expected of women. Mm -hmm. And very much like Wanda, there's, there's an expectation that she should be afraid. She should let what happens, happens to her. And even with Mojizola, it's very much like, you know, learn your place, be a grieving mother, don't go and investigate. And I just wanted us to talk about that, about this, this idea of, you, you should really <coughs> fear, you know, this, this is something that women inherit almost. Mm. Mm. Yes, I think that what, it's interesting because that chapter wasn't, I wasn't gonna write that chapter, it wasn't in the book, there were other chapters. Um, um, and that chapter was supposed to just be about fluency and that's actually from an editor. Um, we love editors. But now we I wish... love editors no, no, no. here. Love Do not editor. harm this... editors. No, no, no. I love this editor. She's one of my closest friends, dearest friends. She's brilliant. But I just wish I had had Yewande's friend because then I would have kept some other things in. But anyway, it's a footnote. <laughs> um, about fluency, because yeah. I'm South African, so there's certain things I assume about fluency that I realize the rest of the world does, many people in the world don't understand about fluency. Mm. So, so, but anyway, so in the writing of that chapter then, I, and in the writing of the book generally, I, I, it's, I guess it was really important for me to show that that fear, first of all, that fear is such a big part of how we socialize into femininity. And, and to stress that, yes, fear is expected of women, but women are taught these things. Because it's, it's almost like when we think about heroism, um, and I think I just, I mean, little girls are fierce, right? And then we have the fierce socialized out of us. I mean, I don't know, like, just hang around toddler, toddler girls, four-year-old, they're like two-year-old. Yo, they're terrorists. Yo, Actually, they're, they're terrorists. They do crazy things. You're like, really? I forgot. I was I like this? <laughs> they're amazing. And they surprise you all the time. And then I thought, well, I mean, how do we go from that to being like fears expected from women? And then I, you know, so, so 
Um, I think it's important. The female fear factory is a big part of it. The <coughs> major part of it is about how women are socialized into that and, and, and what some of those things are and what are. Um, and I think it's really important because if we don't realize that we taught to fear and not just, and I think that's the, 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 what am I trying to say? Not just in relation to violence, because yeah. I think in rape I was talking about Female Fear Factory was a small thing that I was trying to illustrate something about violence. But I realized in the writing of this book, which I didn't want to plan to write, I was going to write another book, um, but everybody only liked Female Fear Factory in the book Rape, so then all they wanted me to talk about was the Female Fear Factory. So, um, but I realized that the connections between fear and femininity are not just in relation to violence. Mm -hmm. They're in relation to everything, because then I realized as I was doing the reading that no, in relation to play, yeah. girls are taught play is dangerous. This is dangerous. Your desire is dangerous. Your body's like fear your body, fear your desire, fear your curiosity, Pleasure. fear your this, fear your everything. And so femininity then becomes a big part of it. It becomes it becomes a problem. Fear. It becomes a problem, right? And so that fear is central to femininity, not just to the fear fact, not to the not just to violence. So. Mm. Um, yeah, so it becomes, we trained into it, and the expectation is built. It's not, we don't imagine it, it's not inherent, whatever inherent means. Mm. Mm. Um, it's taught. Yeah, and it was important for me to show that teaching, um, and I think that in that chapter I show it in relation to play and, 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 and little girls as well, that it's, we taught it the way we taught how to be fluent in a language. We learn it in the same way that we learn. And the problem is that when you know a language well, you don't think about the language. Yeah. You don't yeah. see how the yeah. language works. You just, it's all seamless, and it just becomes natural. But it's not natural. In fact, you know, now that we're talking about this in an unusual grief, I, I always got the sense that Mojisola was also afraid of having a daughter because mm -hmm. she grew up with a mother who told her about a bad aunt. And there, there was something to be feared about femininity. And I think when she, when she goes back to retrace the steps and to, you know, to collect her child or whatever, she, she rediscovers her femininity, which is, which is one of the most important, for me anyway, it was the most important parts where you see a mother parent with fear and a little bit yeah. of like a distance. Yeah. You know, and I think that's why it's so amazing with Wanda's mom, when she picks her up from the hair salon, she says, you did a great job to her daughter and then yells at the hairdresser. I mean, I need Wanda's mom when I go to the hairdresser because <laughs> French plaits. <laughs> so I have small Ayana questions. Does anyone have questions? I say knowing that you have a million. We've got one over there. Uh, thank you, microphone person. It's right here. How is that you, Terry Babes? Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey no, stand up, Matali. Stand up, man. Even on Oprah, they make you stand. <laughs> uh, also on Ricky Lake, but <laughs> this is Oprah, not Ricky Lake. Steve Walcox. Walcox. Yeah. So, um, so my question is to to Pumla. Hi, guys. Um, I wanted to ask what your opinion is on the commercialization of female and, I hate the word female, sorry, the commercialization of femme fear and how we are seeing a lot of brands um, buy into the idea of women-centered uh, women packaging. Why am I so nervous? Wait, whoa. 
right. We're seeing a lot of brands buy into this idea of women-centered uh, products, women-centered services that are very much tailored to the idea of us uh, being afraid. Uh, I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Do you want me to answer? She said Pumla. I know, but I'm scared of you. <laughs> like, just in case She's you're going to say, I'm captain. going to take four more <laughs> questions. And you must know, I was not very good at listening to the prefect, but I'm scared of you. Okay, no, this is Oprah, not prefect. Answer the question. Sure. Okay. Temi, thank you so much for that question. I think that... Um, Um, I think it's part of, I think capitalism and patriarchy work very well together, generally. And I think that as, as there's louder, not greater awareness, just louder articulation of that awareness of how, of how um, capitalism seduces us to do things that aren't necessarily in our interest, um, part of the mutation of that coupling is to come up with, and I, and, and I think you know, that the, the, there are things that are readily available, right? So that already you have um, enormous industries built on the idea that there's something perpetually wrong with, with, our, with, our, with our bodies. Um, I can't remember who wrote the book, but like, like in the early 80s, someone, a feminist wrote a, a, a book called The Beauty Myth. Um, and it's really about, it's about, you know, how we socialized into, women and girls are socialized into this idea of beauty, which then gets um, capitalized in, in, in certain ways. And I think right now, um, the fear, I don't think it's a new fear, I just think it's a mutation um, based on what else is happening in the world and, and the pushing back against certain kinds of, 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 of policing. I think it goes hand in hand to what two British feminists have recently called confidence culture. And so this idea of manufacturing the idea that we have choice, but the choices are all the same thing. So you can, we can sell you this product as a way to deal with or to avoid fearing your body, or we can sell you this product as a way of getting the confidence that you need. And so I think it's just like it's, it's a range of kind of patriarchal capitalist um, manipulations, right? I don't think, I think it's just the mutation of something that, 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 that has been there. So I don't think confidence culture is brand new, but it's, 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 it's also a response, it's louder now, because it's a response to maybe me too in particular. Or maybe it's a response to kind of, you know, a, a different articulation of kind of feminist sensibility in, 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 in the world. So I think it's just sort of simple, I suppose my simple response, and I may revise this and it's going to drive me crazy, um, but I think it's just kind of the, 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 the uh, we were always sold fear, but I think it's just louder now because it's a response to, to a certain kind of critiquing and one of my favorite feminists, um, Gayatri Spivak, I mean, I say this quotation all the time, like, I'm sorry, people who've heard me say it 500 times, but one of the things that she says, and I'm sure other people have said it, but I remember from her, she says that systems of power mutate. So we, and part of how they mutate is by taking things 
from the, so if, if there's radical critique of a system, part of how it survives and mutates is it takes bits of the radical critique so it can look like, oh, there's a shift, we have feminist advertising now, but actually the thing that you think is feminist advertising has just taken the veneer or something, oh my goodness, we have queer advertising. Sometimes it is, but generally it's taken the veneer of something and that's how it's able to survive. So I think that's really what's happening there. Hey, you're Thank so you brilliant, Wayne. I'm oh, brilliant, man. Hi, <laughs> you're so brilliant. <laughs> Where's Mervyn? I will only do conversations if Pumla's here. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mervyn. <laughs> I like but to I'm talk about here. you because I think you're never here. Uh, I think we have a question back there. Uh, I think this question is for Yawande and Pumla. I feel like Sikli has answered it. Um, while you were in the process of writing the book, did you feel like you had to go on a personal journey? Like, for instance, Yawande discovered BDSM. I'm not sure you didn't know about it or whatever. But, like, Pumla also discovered, like, things about, like, giving yourself license to do because of you know, Fear Factory, so did you both go on a personal journey of discovery while you were writing or after? Girl. <laughs> is, that, is that the one and only there? It is, mm -hmm. it is. Big ups to you. Um, thanks for the question. I, I mean, I think writing is a journey. Um, so I, I, it doesn't matter, anything I'm writing feels deeply personal and an adventure. Um, I mean, with the BDSM stuff, yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's, I'm not secretive about it. I mean, I, I, um, I, I opened a, 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 an account on FetLife, and I was quite, oh, I was honest, so if people, I didn't put my picture or anything, I, but people approached me. I called myself Island Girl, because I am one. Come on, and, now. Um, <laughs> when people approach, I mean, just the name, you know, just the name, not even a photograph, the words can lure. Um, I said, I'm a writer. I said, I'm, I'm curious, I'm a human That's being. That's what everybody you know. says. But I'm also a writer, and, and I just want to be open. I don't want to like, steal your story or anything, but I'm curious, and I want to. And some people were open with that, and, and I met up with a few people. Um, some, I, I met an amazing dominatrix who allowed me to um, come to her, her dungeon, and we had an, an interview. Her story is incredible. I try not to tell her story because I told her to write it herself. Mm. I'll need to remind her to do so. I don't think she has yet. But, um, it, it, and that was, it was so, it was healing. It was really healing to actually, to, and I'm curious about it, and I also think I haven't written enough about it. So I'm trying to write more about. Turn up the volume. Uh, turn up the volume, <laughs> turn up the volume. More, more about desire and about it, when you, the thing for me, and it gets maligned, probably not in such great company as this, but I think stuff like BDSM gets maligned a lot in, in certain communities, and I think it gets maligned because, because of fear. Yeah. And the thing with this, this, this thing or this lifestyle, or the, it's, it's just people who are saying, I want to go down all those roads. And the, some of those roads are, I mean, I interviewed people and I was like, and I'm quite open, but ooh, that is not something I need to do. And that's perfectly fine. But, but um, just people giving themselves permission. And that's, that's why for Mojisola it was so amazing because it's like she has never had any permission from her mother, from her aunt, from her husband, from her yeah. child, mm. from her community. And it's this seemingly bizarre practice that gives her permission. 
And I think it's the permission that's so radical yeah. about, about that kind of lifestyle. So, yeah, still on that adventure. I do like no that need to get off the boat. when yeah. she gets into it, she doesn't, my friend always says, do not yuck someone's yum. <laughs> you know, don't be like, ew, when somebody's like, yum. <laughs> and I think what I liked about it is she went into it quite like, oh, am I doing this? Oh, I think I am. Oh, I think I'm good at this. <laughs> you know, and I, I actually really liked how you, you saw this character become more of herself. Mm. Pumla, your journey? Hey, Marcy. Um, <laughs> what? I said, hi, Tembi. You didn't laugh. Why are you laughing when I say with Marcy? We're running out of time. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So in my uh, working life, I, you know, when you're being trained to be a literary scholar, you kind of start to realize that writers have the same, like, have certain preoccupations, and they write different novels, but there's, like, a thing that, and um, I, you don't think of yourself in that way. So the, 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 what was surprising for me about writing this book, which I keep saying, oh, it's like, I wasn't going to write it because I didn't, what I realized was that Clearly, I had a fascination with how to deal with the, first of all, with the thing called the female fear factory, which I didn't know, you know, and um, how to interrupt it since my 20s, because I mm. read a short story that I'd written um, in my 20, like a 21, but had published, um, I don't know, 10 years later um, in a collection. I'd read it when I was living in Cape Town. I'd, I'd done readings of it, but anyway. And then I realized that the whole story the whole short story was a staging of the, of the female fear factory and how to interrupt it. I always thought I came up with this idea while writing Rapist of the African Nightmare. Mm. And here I had written a story when I was living in Cape Town in my honors year at 21 about interrupting the female fear factory on a train. So that was really strange. I thought, oh my God. I really am a writer, for real. Because I have a recurring, I have a recurring thing that I do. So that was the journey. That was, well, that was the most interesting one for me. There are others that may be more interesting to you, but that... You know, now that we're talking about interrupting, I'm sorry, my darlings, I will come back with the questions. Can you please kill my audience lights over here? We'll come back. Yeah, direct appeal. Talking about interrupting, right, I always wonder in what ways do you find yourself interrupting the you know the the, the fluency of of fear you know like i mean Sikhle, you went and, and wrote wonder but in your personal life books aside for a second how do you find yourself interrupting it yeah. that that script that story yeah. i mean i think what what's so amazing i read female factor I, I think it's it's incredible you know we've spoken about this um but i think it's it's how self-policing you become as a result of it, right? Like, so you learn the curriculum and you enter into different spaces, into school, into society, into church, and there's this understanding of what is right, right? Or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a good woman, right? And so you stand on the one side of the coin of what that looks like and then everything else is a shadow of that goodness. And I think that part of it for me in my own journey has been learning to use your voice in its fullness. Hmm. Because I think part of, in some ways, like the way in which I've been trained into womanhood at least, is what is permissible to say. And I think yeah. when you become nurturing and loving and giving and you're a good one, right? Like, and you lead everybody, and especially if you grew up in church, there's an idea of almost like 
there's things that you can say or you speak when people are done speaking and then you kind of close things off. Uh, but at the same time, you do that in a way that constantly mutates yourself and reduces the sound of your own voice to you and the true meaning of what it is that you're trying to say. And I think something that I've been curious about for a long time, and, and I think maybe with Yawanda's work around grief as well, is the ways in which um, almost like women have to get on with life. And I think a lot about this in my own home and in my own environment. My dad passed away when I was very young. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I wrote a story called The Mother Who Chewed Her Tongue. And I was saying this to mom, I'm like, man, you never spoke anything about this grief at all. And what I'm discovering was always an interrupter of this grief, of this mutedness. Well, it seems like that's what it is, is writing. And what I didn't know for a long time was that my mother was a writer. And oh, I didn't know that at all. And what I've recently discovered is like this big box of books. And she's soon publishing a poetry collection. Oh, um, wow. And the first one was of her first child that passed away that I knew nothing about until about 2015. And so I think something that I've been interested in is how women are making space for themselves and writing, whether it's journaling, whether it's writing to friends, whether it's letters, and almost that being an interrupter of what is permissible to say, so that when you're actually writing the thing, it's so raw and it's so true to you, and it's not considering, what will Muhale think about this, right? Or if I say it this way, what will Yawanda say, right? Like, and so, I think for me, not having to premeditate the response and being able to fully find my own voice mm -hmm. and to speak in its fullness. And I think that happens first through the pen. And I think what's powerful now is realizing that you have full permission to do it mm -hmm. in this context right here too. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Mm. <laughs> Yawande, your interruptions. But uh, wow. Sorry, before that, when you talk about your mother, you know, not knowing that your mother was a writer, this is something that comes up in an unusual grief as well, where, you know, uh, Yinka is an artist and Mojisola doesn't really think of herself as an artist. And you know, she also goes through a process where she, she takes up space as an artist mm -hmm. while she's processing her grief. Mm -hmm. So there's so many, mm -hmm. listen, man, these three books work so beautifully and you guys Thank work so beautifully. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to say that, that there are things that keep coming up that kind of work together with the, the writing and your own personal lives, of course. So, Yewande, your, your interruptions. Yeah, and it's, it's great to hear about your mom's collection. That's amazing. Um, I think the, the, yeah, what I was thinking was the, and fluency, and you're talking about language and, and actually how it's, it's almost even before language, because cause, cause language, even though your first language, but you know it's a language, whereas the sphere thing is, you, you don't even know it's a thing, it's just the water, and um, which makes interrupting it impossible. Because yeah. how do you interrupt something that doesn't exist to be interrupted? So, so, so first, it's the surfacing of it, like the appearing of it, so that it's a thing to be interrupted, to be seen. And what I was thinking a lot was about the ways in what you were saying, that it's not just fear of violence, because again, that somehow is obvious and clear. But it's, it's it like what I think a lot about is the, the, the fear of joy, the fear like when I catch myself, what I'm actually doing is, look, why are you holding your breath? If you can just, you can actually just 
oh wow, you can actually just do that. You know, mm. like the thunder's not gonna fall down on you. And so, so um, that, that's what I think of, like this, how to interrupt the fear of pleasure and the fear of joy and love and reciprocated love. And I mean, another thing I think is the, fe the fear of that you, you can have it, yeah. whatever that it is. Yeah. Oh my God. That you, yeah. you can have it. Mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can actually have that, whatever that is. Um, you're allowed that. It's okay to have that and to enjoy it and to relish it. To relish it. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's hard. I mean, I can, I can sort of look at examples where I, I feel like somehow it surfaced and yeah. I was able to interrupt and enjoy something, yeah. small things and big, and big, big ones. Mm. But um, I think it is hard. Yeah. It's really hard because it's mostly not there to be noticed in the first sure. place. You're absolutely right about it. Language is easy to identify. It's kind of like my whole life I've occupied this body mm. and I've been too curvaceous. My thighs have been too big. My breasts came, you know, came when I was very little. I'm, I'm, I'm a dark-skinned woman with, with curves mm. and whatever. And mm. nobody said it, but I could, I could read it on my mother's face, on my family mm. members' faces when all the other kids were wearing shorts. If I wore shorts, it was like, hey, 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 where are you going, where are you going, where are you going? And Nobody needed to say there's something wrong with your body, right? Because it was never the, there is the fear of violence of how somebody's going to violate me because of how my body is. But it was also slowly teaching me that when the other kids wear shorts, I don't wear shorts. Nobody said what it was, so I couldn't even, I couldn't even say, oh, it's because my thighs are big. Oh, it's because my breasts came, you know, too early. And I realized recently when I was on holiday with my friends, um, I had a very beautiful yellow dress, but all of this was happening. All of this. <laughs> and I was going to change and put on a t-shirt, but then I was like, do you know what? I've been walking around all day. It's 33 degrees, and I've seen women's bras out, and it was not offensive, but I'd already turned that thing on myself. I'd already turned that gaze on myself to be like, if somebody sees this small and a red thing, oh my God, you're being scandalous. And I think it's only now, at, at my big age, that I'm like, the thighs are big, they're not going anywhere. The breasts are big, they're not going anywhere. This is the body, and if other people can wear whatever they wear, I shouldn't turn that, that violence on myself. And I only started doing the interrupting specifically around my body two weeks ago on holiday, and I'm all of, I'm all of 50 million years old. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's difficult to, to interrupt something when nobody has actually said, it's because you look yeah. this way sure. that we don't want you to dress like the other children. Yeah. Wow. The unsaid. Sure. Pumla. All the unsaid. Pumla, you've got a million examples of how you've been interrupting. I mean, you even talk about your story. And I, I want to know, as a person who, who's been interrupting successfully, like what are, the, what are the things when you see some people who are about to interrupt and stop themselves. Where do you see that happen mostly? I mean, you know, you spoke about the writing, you spoke about actually like allowing yourself joy and me saying, ah, these big old thighs are these big old thighs. <laughs> I have one for you, Pums. Sita's going to answer for you. I have one for you. Yes, yes, please answer. Do you know something that I'm thinking about, and I think we've had a conversation recently. Oh, this is great. Is, um, <laughs> so I mean, if you think about it, for women, like the kind of like, Fear is already just around your body, just like that starts there. But the other thing that actually has very like real material um, damage is fear around being able to claim money, right? 
uh, and I think about maybe for a lot of women, when you do work, where you're like, I don't want to charge too much. You know, it's like, you, yeah. you kind of, even by the time you send the invoice, like, will they, th you know? And something where sometimes even before somebody's like, oh, so how much are you gonna charge for this? Or they ask you one question. So I had a recent question for some work housing. I sent them my rates and then they're like, oh, does this include flights? And I was like, oh, shucks, they think it's too much, right? Like before they've, I've said anything. And then I was like, you know what? I don't mind cutting it down to and I realized, I'm like, they hadn't even said, we don't have the money for you to come and do this work. But you're already feeling like you must do a lot, right? But I'm thinking about that conversation you had that way, like, what am I going to say for this rate in this hour? And I'm like, Paula, you're a professor. Like, <laughs> you, not simply, you, <laughs> you simply standing there is enough for the amount that you charge, right? Like, so I'm just thinking about even the way, the material, like, uh, erosion for women in general in terms of what you're able to accumulate because you can't claim. You've already edited, you know? And I think that's a... I'm not going to tell Sisle any more of my secrets <laughs> ever again, just so you all know. So don't ask me about it. I don't know what she's talking about. And just in case you're wondering, yes, it is one million rand for Pumla. If you have a problem, yeah. you can meet outside. Hey. So, ah, uh, Mervyn, you know I'm going to ask for... But why am I not allowed to have a thing that I can't interrupt? <gasps> Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no. sorry. Like okay. you said, you interrupt everything. You won't have this problem. And then she just said, I have a thing. Like, I yeah, have lots what, of things. What is your thing? Tell us about oh. your thing. <laughs> Pumla's going to fight me out for this. <laughs> what is your thing? You know, I, I, I think, yes, this is the thing, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I'm. <sighs> Yes, on the one hand, I'm committed to interrupting things. That's how I do, that's how I do my feminism. But I've also realized that sometimes, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to use my voice for weird things that I think are important to me, or to the world to say. Um, but what I have struggled with until very, very, very recently, so it's kind of like your body experience, is, so I don't need permission, but I realized that I somehow had put myself in this position. So instead of the expectation of doing good and, and being a good girl, which I've always been good at interrupt, well not always, tried very hard to be very, to be consistent about, about disrupt, uh, interrupting. The challenge has been when to choose to keep things that are mine mm. to myself. And it's a very recent lesson. I think when you write about violence, um, there is, I always say, oh, I don't need permission for anything, but I realized that I wasn't entirely honest until recently about, I don't, I don't need permission to speak, but I, didn't realize I didn't need permission not to speak, like not, not to speak. Yeah. I didn't realize that nobody deserved the front row seat to my trauma, mm. right? So often people would say, well, if you were a survivor, and then part of me would be like, but I wrote a whole thing about why we shouldn't require people to say I'm a survivor first before they can speak about things. And in fact, when they do, they get disregarded precisely because. 
So I was like, I'm not going to say whether I am or not. Mm. But it just keeps coming back and keep coming back. And then eventually at some point I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to go into, and it's not because I'm squeamish, it's just because I don't think it should be a condition to. Yeah. But I, so, so, so I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm getting better at interrupting, that expectation that I've also partly created, right? That, well, you know, I'm human, I have weird things, but actually, unless you're my friend, you don't deserve a front row seat to my trauma. Unless it's Sikhe who's going <laughs> to tell don't... all your stories. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. That thing of being able to keep parts of your life yeah. like to yourself. There's yeah. this when you're an outspoken woman, mm. it's okay now. Tell us everything. Yeah, and it's like, like why? No, actually, why are you not telling us yeah. about your boobs? It's, huh? it's not, <laughs> you're like because I don't. <laughs> you can see them, but we don't have to talk about them all the time. <laughs> So, um, I know you have questions, and I know Mervyn is even standing under the exit sign. Yay! What danger, Asla. So, we're going to take questions. Aren't we going to read? Oh, here's a question down here, and then there's a question back there. Hey, we need the mic. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I just have a brief question for your wonder specifically. How, if you ace for... Because as a woman, I struggle a lot with grief. And I've seen, you know, in my family also, like a lot of the women struggle with grief. The, I think it's the whole thing you're speaking about of like you need to kind of move on. So I'm wondering if in writing this book, you were able to find ways in which we can tap into then, you know, grieving. Mm, yeah, okay. I'll try and answer that. I, I, I like, I mean, one of the things I, I, I realized or thought or came upon is the, the, like the mythology around grief or the, the lie, you know, because it's very like the prosaic like grief, uh, the shape of grief, and it tapers off, you know, if you had to draw the graph. And that's, that's actually not true, is what I realized, and what I've lived. What I've lived is, so my mom, I mean, I'm, you know, my mom died almost 20 years ago. What, I, what I've lived is that um, grief, grief, grief does that. You know, it's, it, I ha I've just had babies, you know, and I had babies without my mother, and whoa, the grief, like it's brand new, because, because it's a different layer to it, and, and, then, and then there are times when it's super quiet, and then it, and I think if that sort of answered your question, I mean, just, I'm just giving myself the grace of that understanding means that I don't have to feel guilty, you know, or feel weird, or feel inappropriate, or childish, or silly, or come on, get over it, or, I can give myself the grace of, hang on, that we, we got the shape of grief wrong. This notion that it kind of, it does this, and then there's some finite end, and a, okay, done with that, because they died 50 years ago, or whatever, is, because, and the other thing we get wrong is, somebody was complaining, you know, her, her grandmother died, oh, somebody on radio was complaining, she said her grandmother died, and her grandmother's 103. And it was like, oh, well, she's 103. Hi, boo. And she was like, excuse me, you know, she's my grandma, and that's probably harder because she's been around longer and looked like she'd live forever. So, so these are the, we have these sort of incorrect notions, mm. yeah, around, around grief and death, and those are two that, that I, I try and keep to mind these days. Mm. Uh, we had a question somewhere there. Go back. The grace of that understanding. Mm. 
Hi. Hi. I have a question to the panel. So you were talking about um, not being fearful of joy. I think that's really important in our context. Can you maybe share some advice on how we can't be fearful or can change the way we perceive things, like there's this imminent threat of death, the sky's gonna fall down, or we're gonna get <laughs> eaten up by the earth. Mm. Uh, for those of us who have severe trauma, um, the difficult times can somehow be easier because you, you, you're ready to fight, you in fight or flight, and you're ready, you're ready, you're waiting for this thing, and you're like, yeah. Are you? And then what happens when there's joy is that you kind of turn in on yourself and you start whipping yourself. Mm. You, you hold the whip. So mm. how do you take back that agency? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. <coughs> hey, Lang, somebody. <laughs> I can speak about joy. Um, I come from actually a very joyful family, which I, has given me, I think, like a particular, like, I don't know, like, I view to joy that's been very interesting. And I think uh, when the pandemic happened, I went back home and I was living at home for about two years, which was quite interesting. But my mom, um, and what was really interesting for um, the depth of COVID, we had probably about like nine deaths in our community and it's quite a close knit community. But the last one was my grandmother passing away. And soon after that, my mother's best friend that lives down the road. And I remember it was on my birthday. And what was crazy and so incredible to see was my mom would play the same song and she'd sit in the lounge, play the same song every single day and she'd start to sing. It was a song called, We Will Overcome, right? She'd sing it and she'd sing it and she'd sing it. But every single morning she also had these affirmations like wisdom determines your joy, wisdom determines your strength, yes. wisdom determines your health, wisdom determines your life, right? Like, <laughs> and what I think I didn't know before about joy is that actually it's also a practice. So I think we can think about meditating and sitting and like practicing like calm and we practice like all other emotions that are much harder. We practice patience, we talk about that. We practice what that, uh, and those become important values. But I think joy is actually a value that you can inculcate one so you can have a practice for joy that actually lifts and nourishes your own spirit in a way that gives you power. But what I also realized about joy, which I think is so powerful, is that it actually gives you strength to do. And I'm going to quickly make another example of this. When, when I was doing my PhD, which was just a horrid experience, I'm, I'm not going uh, to... I constantly felt so useless. I kept feeling like, oh my God, you're not doing nothing. And I remember there was a time when my mom came to town and she was doing some research project. And she was so late on everything, guys. Like, she was calling the people late. You know, like, all these things are late. And every time somebody would agree to, oh, you can come tomorrow morning, she's like, well done, Bexy. Well done, Bexy. Well done, Bexy. I am very proud of you. It's like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And I looked at it and I thought, come on now. I thought if it was me calling this person today for tomorrow, I'd feel like, oh my God, right? Like there's a dialogue that I have of myself. But I realized that joy gave her the strength to do the next thing and the next thing. And, and then she's done. She's like, yes, Lord. You know, like, <laughs> yes, so Lord. I think you you, for you to be able to actually live out your full life, you have to give yourself that permission for joy. Absolutely. It can't be battle or go, no, you can't. It's hard, battle's hard. 
Um, and so I think that's just my, yeah. my insight on joy, that it's actually like a thing that you must invite and open into your life so that it can actually infill you and you can do what you really want to do, which is to live. Absolutely. Yes, love! <laughs> yes, love! <laughs> yes. Uh, does anyone have something to say before I ask? Pumla, do you have something yes. to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to answer um, my favorite feminist economist to ask that question, just so you all know. Um, <laughs> um, I, um, I, I cultivate it. Mm. I, I literally, I don't like routine, but I, I pencil it in. Like I force, and, 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 and mm. I'm, I'm a, 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 okay, I'm a, I can't believe I'm telling open book, but anyway, um, I'm a recovering alcoholic, right? So 10 years this year. And one of the things that... Yes, love. One of the things that sobriety has taught me is that when you don't feel like doing the work, that's when you need to do the work. When you don't want to go to an AA meeting, you absolutely have to go that day. And so I pencil it in. And I, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like doing yoga. I don't feel like it. And I'm like, I'm going to play the YouTube thing and I'm going to dance like a maniac in my life because I, I'm not doing joy today. Fuck joy. So you need joy. <laughs> All right. We're not writing today for half an hour. We're going to dance. The yeah. last thing I want to dance is dance. And I'm, and I'm by nature very playful, but I'm also very intense. And so I just, I, I, I force myself to play. And then when you start the playing or you start the ridiculous dancing, then you're in it. Then you're like, oh my God, Eve. Oh my God, Whitney. Oh my God, like all the crazy things. And it's been three hours and now you're like, oh, I've been happy for three hours and I haven't written. But I mean, that's a good investment. Pencil it in. And if you don't want to do it, you have to do it. Yeah. Make time for joy. It's a habit. I get, even I know when I've gone too far. So there's a, there's a question here. You must put up your hands now before Mervyn kicks us out. I'm so glad we're not reading anymore. <laughs> oh gosh, we didn't have time for reading. Uh, we'll, we'll read some other day. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot. Some other day. Um, I have a question about intergenerational interruptions. So like part of what I was feeling during the session was, um, I think I became a feminist at an early age, kind of to interrupt for my mom. Yeah. because she like was very much socialized into the fear thing and I'm wondering like in in Wanda's case her mom like was like it's okay we can interrupt but like how do we help our moms interrupt fear wow okay Whoa. so maybe I have something to say yes. hey it's my time um so I live a very unconventional life. I think my mother had a daughter. She's only got one daughter, and she had plans, man. She had me in pageants. Um, uh, can you imagine? A pageant. <laughs> that failed. And then she tried to turn me into this really, you know, neat, beautiful, church-loving, church-going... Uh. Uh, she was like, no smoking, no drinking. Uh. No sex before marriage. I'm a virgin, thank you. As far as my mother knows. Um, and I think my mother, I think she got to a point where she was like, it's simply impossible 
Like, she gave up. She was waiting for a wedding. She was waiting for Mr. <coughs> somebody so I can be Mrs. Somebody. And the more mm. I did these things, like, because she had this idea that I was going to move out of home when I got married. Yo, can you imagine people wheeling me out of my mother's house at 100? <laughs> <laughs> but when I, when I chose to go to university and leave home, I, I saw a change in my mom. First, it was anger. And then her watching me live this life that I, I was choosing for myself constantly, she started becoming a little belligerent at home, but like a good belligerent because my mom is a lady, you know, and as she was watching me break the rules, she started breaking the rules little by little at home that now she's insufferable. Like, <laughs> she's absolutely chaotic. Like, if we're at home drinking wine and then you don't fill up her glass, she'll just take your glass and keep it moving because she's like, Gida Joy, you're wasting my time. And, and that's not how my mother ever was. She was like, she, she was a lady. Oh, Susan is a lady, okay? Um, and her watching me be a wild child that has gone against everything that she wanted, I think she was just like, if this little ball of, you know, skin and bones that I brought into the world can cause this much chaos, I'm sure I have permission to cause chaos as well. She stopped going to church. <laughs> she sends my dad to church and she's like, tell me what the scripture is. <laughs> uh, you know, she's got, she's got small Ayana arthritis, but she doesn't do anything in the house. She's like, yo, my, my hands now, can you see? And why is it a woman's job all the time when, when I'm suffering? So I think her watching me be the wildest, most, and this is not what she wanted at all, but her watching me become this wild woman who is turning 40 next year and is going, oh, you know what, maybe I'll have a baby. You know, she's just like, oh, it's okay. Mm. And in small ways, she's rebelling, but it's not easy in the beginning. It's mm. not easy. I always felt like I was letting my mom down because she's got two sons and one daughter, right? So she's only going to be mother of the bride. <laughs> mother of the bride once in her life. But I think when I gave myself permission to kind of be like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm going to move out of home. I'm going to do the drinking and the smoking and being virginal and, you know, buying my own property and all of that. Then she was, in, in small ways, she, she became un governable. And so I think sometimes it's seeing a thing you brought into the world become a bulldozer and going, how can I bulldoze in small ways in my home? So sometimes it's just setting that example. But in the beginning, your mom's not going to like it. She's not going to like it. But eventually, I think seeing something you created be so big and bold you can't help but be a little like, okay, let me break the rules. Let me take this wine glass because you took too long to fill it, you know? So I think for me, that's, that's the only way I've been able to do that. And also, if she wants to go shopping, we'll go shopping. She will return the clothes afterwards because she's like, oh, she's got such bad style. I was just saying yes to say yes. But I love that she's a ridiculous, she's a ridiculous woman. And she's never been able to say no or take things back. And now she, you know, she'll be like, I, I took those clothes back and I got the money and I got myself nice shoes. Do it, girl. Yeah. Be a menace. <laughs> and so I think that for me is how I'm, I'm kind of interrupting intergenerational whatevers. And now she's happy that she's going to be a grandmother to a child, gee, at 40, this wild woman with tattoos who's doing whatever. She's excited. She's like, yes, bring on the baby. It's not the way I imagined it would be, but yeah. So interrupt, interrupt, and inspire. Mahale. Uh, 
It was me at the side. Oh, I was like, who's talking out there? <laughs> It'll be less than 30 seconds. You know what I'm really interested in at the moment? I'm very interested in what, like, what curiosity can do mm. to help heal our lineages. And I think mm. by that I mean like, the, there's so much that our mothers and our grandmothers had to leave behind to create a life and to create communities that I think that they are like, ver like reduced versions of themselves in some, in some ways, right? Yeah. And I'm very interested in like when we begin to ask questions, like more intimate, more curious, more interested questions about who they are and how they came to be who they are, yep. the kinds of answers that we can learn of the lineages or the intergenerational connections that exist in our families, but also the ways in which they can begin to almost like uncover and recover and restore some of those lost years. And I think sometimes when you ask questions of like, so when, how did this happen? And, and I'm somebody who's always like asking questions and my sister's always like, oh my God, like, you know, like, and suddenly the story that I've grown up hearing all my life suddenly sounds different. Everybody said, which means she was forced into marriage. She's like, I does Katel, right? Like, so, so I think that kind of an openness for ourselves with our mothers and our grandmothers that is a curiosity about who they are outside of the role of what they've had to be to us, I think can bring an intimate connection that can be restorative to all of us. Yeah. Hi, oh, brilliant, Sise. Brilliant. Everybody's brilliant. So I'm gonna wrap this up. Hey, yeah, even Mervyn is like, ha ha, you've done too much now. 12 minutes, no ways. So um, any parting words, my beautiful, beautiful friends? Any parting words for people who came here to see you, except they'll sign your books outside? Say something you want. <laughs> wow. Even if it's get the book. Parting words. No, well, I mean, just carrying on from what you were saying, I mean, it's such a profound question. It really hit me also because my mom isn't here. And so in some ways that interruption is, it, you, one still can, but it's interesting. And I was thinking, similar to what you were saying, compassion, because I think we, we think, okay, how can, like, we're the rambunctious bunch and the wild child. I was definitely that for my mother. My mother's very, you know, decent and wonderful and kind. And but also when I look back and look at her life and look at my grandmother, a fierce church-going woman, I find the ways in which they, they were um, subvert, subversive, mm. the ways in which they wouldn't call it feminism, but they were pushing back. It, 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 in, in my lens, I was like, I mean, they weren't angry enough. And they didn't put, but, but the compassion to, to realize how much they were actually doing based on time, circumstance, culture, what they were, you know, my mother's love for my father was actually, you know, this Niger man in the 60s who probably had 10 wives back in Nigeria. Where are you, what? <laughs> and the Caribbean, for anybody who knows, I mean, a, a, an immense amount of aspersions cast towards Africa, you know, yeah. um, partly I think because of the, the history and the slave trade and uh, an uncomfortable relationship with this continent. So, so my dad was questioned and looked at askance and my mom was this gentle woman who this was the man she would love and, and make a family with. And that's radical. But in my, in my sort of 15-year-old angry child girl, she wasn't radical enough. So just compassion as well yeah. in our interrupting to actually have compassion and see there's, there's a lot there that if we shift the lens a bit, we'll see. But we don't see immediately. Pumla, you get the last word because I love you so much. 
I love you too, Mohale. Um, I love what you want there and, 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 and Sisha saying. And I think that also sometimes what, and I've had similar experiences, right? So, I mean, for example, um, sometimes we make sense of people's lives based on where we sit. Mm-hmm. And, I, and as I get older, I, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating more and more how, even though I'm very critical of aspects of choices that my mom's made and my grandmother's made, I'm also realizing the ways in which the incredibly bizarre, in feminist, interesting ways, lie, even as they were doing sometimes very patriarchal things, enabled my life, right? So, I mean, you know, my grandmother is from Lesotho. The fact that she, now, my grandmother frustrated me endlessly. <laughs> Endlessly, my maternal grandchun, endlessly as a child. And I just couldn't understand what, like, but as I, I'm turning 50 this year, in a few months, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing, hell, she also left, she was raised in rural Lesotho, and then when she was like in her late teens, moved countries in colonial Southern Africa to come marry some guy who lived in another country that she kind of was, I don't know how they chose, but anyway, they chosen each other. And I was like, goodness, what it takes for me as with everything that I have to pack up my life to go, you know what I mean? So I'm like, so those kinds of things. Or some things about my mother that would frustrate me as a child sometimes, how she would just like go off on some course. And I'd be like, but like, really? Like, what about me? The world revolves around us, your children. And now I'm like, but that gave me, so many, it wasn't, your husband could go off and do certain things, but you were not supposed to also so unabashedly um, pursue and change your mind. Because, you know, she also did really strange things. She was a nurse her whole life. Then for like a few years, she decided she wanted to be a teacher. And she did all the training. Then she hated teaching. That. And I was like, you wasted all the things you could have given us. You were wasting. You were busy wasting. But I'm just like, but at the same time, the gift, even though I was irritated in my late teens and my 20s with her, I realize now that it gave me permission in terms of pursuing and making mistakes and being able to go back. And, and so, and that was very, dis- it wasn't what, you know, and so they may not look like my idea of what a wild woman is, but I wouldn't be a wild woman if they hadn't been done wild things and being wild women in certain kinds of ways, right? And so I think that compassion um, and grace, like just under, you know, just be like, okay, well, you know, maybe they're not these big, like the women before us, maybe they're not these big phallic patriarchal women that we think they are. Maybe be able to see some of those spaces, right? Um, at the same time as inspiring them by our wildness, hopefully. Yeah, thank you very much, Pumla. Thank you, Sikhe. Thank you, Yawande. Uh, They're signing books outside. You've been amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, 
the city of Cape Town and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode.